All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open up God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord's guidance and direction on our study today. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we're reminded that you have breathed this out to us. The origin of what we read is not in the mind of Paul, but is in your mind. You breathe this out through the Apostle Paul, and in a way we can't quite comprehend, you did this in such a way that without obliterating his personality, you could guarantee that that which he wrote was without error. It is designed for the purpose of teaching us. It is designed to, to reprove us where we are wrong and to give us uh, correction, to put us on the right path and to instruct us in righteousness. As we study your word, there are so many different aspects and features that as we read it, we are continually impressed with how it all fits together, how one section complements and expands another And, Father, all of it focuses our attention upon you and all that you have provided for us. And now as we study this prayer of Paul's in Ephesians 1, uh, 15 and following, we pray that you would help us to understand that which we read because we have been illuminated at regeneration because of the new birth, our ability to understand Scripture because we're no longer spiritually dead yet, We still need to come to an understanding, be enlightened as to what this passage is saying and what your word says to us. And we pray that we would be responsive to us, that to what we learned today, and that we would be responsive to your word, that we may grow and mature as believers. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And today we're going to start looking at a couple of verses, 16, 17, and 18, starting just briefly at the end of 16, which we covered last time, and going down through 18. And the purpose for this is what is clearly stated in verse 17, which is that we may uh, increase in our knowledge of God. So that is the title for what we're studying today, that we may know God, not simply to know about God, but to know God. It has to do with deepening our personal intimacy, our rapport, our relationship, our walk with the Lord, that while it is based on the knowledge of facts and information, which is critical, it moves beyond that as we walk with the Lord to understand a level of of intimacy with the God who created us and the God who redeemed us. We are in this second section of Ephesians 1, second large section. We have a salutation, and then there is this extended statement related to 
the blessing of the way in which God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing involving the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this has led Paul into a prayer which is similar to the one we read about in our responsive reading this morning in Colossians chapter 1. And this prayer extends down to the end of the, of the chapter. What's interesting about the prayers of Scripture is that a study of them can be incredibly extensive because there are uh, just hundreds of prayers in Scripture. Some are short, some are long. All of the Psalms are, in one sense, prayers. And as we read them, they teach us how to pray. They teach us what to pray for. They teach us what the priorities in prayer should be, and that is really a focus of these next few verses as we get into this section in Ephesians chapter 1. So these verses tell us the reasons for Paul's prayer, and they tell us what our focus should be in our own prayers. In verses 15 to 16, what we have is an emphasis on the situation that prompted Paul's prayer. He had, first of all, stated all of these blessings that he covered in verses 3 down through 14, which emphasized our new position in Christ, the blessings that we have in Christ, and that by being part of this new entity, the body of Christ, that we have been appointed to a mission. We have been appointed to that mission and that we have been given various assets, various tools, various spiritual blessings in order to be able to pursue that mission and to accomplish that mission. Uh, Failure to do so doesn't mean that we can lose our salvation. It simply means that we miss out on the privileges of being involved in God's plan and purpose in this church age, and it also impacts negatively our inheritance in the future kingdom. Having gone over all of those things, Paul reaches a conclusion. He, he thinks through these things, he, he's focused on them, and it moves him to prayer. That's why he begins with a therefore, but also he is responding to a report from the church at Ephesus related to their spiritual growth and <clears throat> their love for one another. It is faith first. Faith is always related to learning the word, believing it, and then applying it. Uh, love without a doctrinal foundation easily slips into uh, just sentimentality. It slips into superficiality. And unfortunately, this is often how people think of love in our in our culture because Love in our culture is reduced mostly to physical attraction, and it has little to do with in-depth appreciation and attraction uh, of a soul, of another person, and building that, that relationship. And so the love that we have for all the saints is not to be confused with the love we experience on a day-to-day basis, but an understanding of that love which was demonstrated at the cross. As Jesus said to his disciples, a new command I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. So that becomes the foundation. So Paul is pleased that they are growing, that they are becoming spiritually mature, and as a result of that, he gives thanks. He is grateful, 
And last week we looked at the importance of gratitude as part of a bar- as one barometer of our own uh, spiritual growth. Uh, learning to focus on being grateful for what we have, not being uh, entitled, not thinking that we have what we have because somehow we're good enough, we're great enough, we're nice enough, we're attractive enough that, of course, God has provided all these things for me and he's given me an IQ and he's given me an education where I can go out and achieve the things that I've, I've done. Uh, and so we put the focus on us. It was interesting today as I was... Uh, perusing quickly any news items to see if there was something significant. I ran across a little human interest story about a a mother who had a problem with an ungrateful daughter. I thought, my, i got to look at that. That fits with what I taught last week. And this is a young girl, little girl, who's going to elementary school, probably sounds like kindergarten or first grade, and she had... Uh, the mother was buying all of her school supplies and this little girl had really wanted this one pencil case and doesn't describe it or anything but it was very special and she really wanted it and so eventually the mother bought that for her she was buying all the different things and when she gave it to her little girl the little girl got mad and huffy and threw it in the trash and I don't want that anymore everybody else has one so the mother decided she needed to teach the little girl a lesson about about gratitude. So she uh, waited a while because the mother said she needed to simmer down a little bit, which is always a good idea, before she began to uh, apply a lesson to the daughter. And the first thing she did was that she went into the kitchen and reached into the drawer we all have with all that stuff in there, that we use to save and store things. And she pulled out a Ziploc bag and wrote the little girl's name on it. And she went in and said, well, since you didn't like that really nice pencil case, this is your new pencil case. Just a Ziploc bag. And then she said, now, that was cost some money to buy that other pencil case, so I took it out of the trash. And what we're going to find is some girl that family cannot afford such a nice pencil case and cannot, uh, and she doesn't have anything like that, and you're going to give it to her. And so that was the beginning of a lesson in gratitude, something we all need to pay attention to. We need to be grateful, Scripture says, in all things and for all things. And so I closed out last time just talking about the basic elements of prayer using the acronym of CATS, confession, where we admit or acknowledge our sin to the Lord so that we are restored to a position of walking by the Spirit. Adoration and praise is the A, so we focus on the Lord and think through his essence, his attributes, his character, and how that has impacted our lives. And that leads to the T for thanksgiving and focusing on those attributes And then the S is for supplication, where we intercede for others and we have petitions for ourselves. Too often we probably focus on the last one rather than all of the others. But we need to focus on who God is. That brings everything else into into perspective. So we come to our opening section here in Ephesians 1, 15 or 16 to 19. 
And in this passage, I just want to read this and give us a little bit of an overview here because it's important. This is all one sentence in the, in the Greek, just like verses 3 to 14 was one sentence in the Greek. Verses 15 down to 23 is another sentence. And it's easy to get lost in all of the dependent clauses and relative clauses and causal clauses and things like that and lose sight of what is going on here. But what Paul is expressing here is the basic prayer that it comes across, the content of the prayer comes across in verse 17, where he prays in relation to our understanding and increase in the knowledge of God. And I think everything else is subordinate to that and explains that. We saw last time in verse 16, he doesn't cease to give thanks for you all, and that as a result, he makes mention of them in his prayers. Now, what is he saying? What is the content of his prayer? That's what begins in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now we're going to stop there, but the prayer goes on. You know, if I were uh, wanting to kind of tweak everybody a little bit this morning, I would ask you how many times you have prayed for those three things mentioned in verse 18. What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us? I dare say not many of us have ever prayed those three specific categories in application to our spiritual life, and yet that's what Paul is outlining here. When we look at this section, this is not an easy set of verses to understand, by the way. We think we do. You can read through that, and you think you have a pretty good idea of what's there. And I have thought in the past that I have a pretty good idea of what's there, but maybe we're just a little bit mistaken when we when we think that this is the that at the beginning of 117 expresses his purpose that that in 118 is not the same word it is a different word but it still expresses uh, expresses purpose so it is the broader purpose is stated in verses 17 down to the first part of 18 And then the specifics in relation to this prayer are outlined in the second part of 18 and on into 19. We probably won't get there this morning. That, um, and so those are, it's real clear in the, in the, it's, it's pretty clear in the English because in the English you have these three what's. In, in the Greek you also have a relative pronoun there that's translated as a what in, in English, so that gives you these three points that he's going to focus on. But before we get there, we really have to understand verses 17 and the first part of 18. 
And the difficult phrases that we have there are the ones I have underlined in this particular slide. And that is the phrase, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And then we have a phrase that is connected to that, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. So these are the two major uh, exegetical problems we have to understand as we go through this section. What does that mean? I remember years ago, I think I was in my first year out of seminary, and I was uh, working for a Christian camp, but I was going up to Tomball Bible Church where Harry Leaf was the pastor at the time, and we would meet together for, for lunch or go play racquetball together about once a week. And that was much, that time I spent with Harry was much more profitable for getting an understanding of what it meant to be a pastor than my pastoral internship. My pastoral internship was at a Southern Baptist church, and the pastor couldn't decide whether he believed in inerrancy and infallibility or not. That was back in the late 70s when that was a big battle then, and it's become a big battle now. And so that experience, you know, it checked off the boxes so I could graduate, but it didn't do a whole lot in terms of giving me any insight into a pastoral ministry other than a negative example. And I remember just out of the blue one day, Harry asked me, he said, what do you think that means in Ephesians 1.18 that the eyes of our understanding should be enlightened? And I looked at him, I said, I don't have a clue. <laughs> One reason I say that is because when we get out of seminary, a lot of people think that you have mastered something. You have. You've mastered your curriculum for the last four years, and you have a master's in theology. But it all that a seminary education does is it gives you the seeds that you have to you have to nourish and water and fertilize for the rest of your life so it produces something of value. Now, the reason I say that is there's a lot of people who misunderstand a seminary education, think that when you get out of seminary, you've arrived. When you got out of seminary, you've basically gotten the uh, basic training behind you, and you get the opportunity to go to the plate and bat. But you don't have any experience hitting a ball yet or playing in a real baseball game. You just have the tools and so it takes time to develop those things. And I tell these young pastors that, that I mentor that um, you may say a lot of wonderful things and teach a lot of good things the first 10 years of your ministry, but when you've had 40 years in, you will look back and realize that everything you did after that 10th year built on all the mistakes that you made in the first 10 years. The thing that you as a congregation need to recognize is that your responsibility is to suffer through young pastors during those first 10 years. Because the the difficult thing is the only way we learn to grow spiritually is by failing. The only way we learn to grow and develop in our spiritual gifts and our understanding of God's Word is by making mistakes, misinterpreting the Word, misapplying the word because it takes time. In fact, we're still going to be figuring things out and learning about God's word for all into eternity. 
It's not something that we stop with once the rapture occurs and we're face-to-face with the Lord. We never become omniscient. We will know more than we know now, but we will be face-to-face with the Lord, and we will know more, but not all. So the, the reason I say all of that is because this whole passage is focusing on the importance of knowledge and that we have to grow, and it's a long-term process. It's not accomplished in two or three years, although Paul treats the Corinthians as if they could reach spiritual maturity within two or three years. Think about that. Most of us should be into spiritual maturity within two or three years. That's the expectation of Scripture. That doesn't mean we understand it all or know it all, But the basics of applying the word, trust and obey, should be part of our makeup, part of our character. So all of that is going to play more into what I say here as we go through this passage and try to figure this out. Now, jigsaw puzzles are wonderful things. I haven't worked one in years. But when I was a kid... We would often do those. My parents would buy different jigsaw puzzles, and I think they are very important for developing kids' problem-solving abilities. It's fun to work a jigsaw puzzle, but to do it, you have to develop your logical machine. You have to think in terms of why you're choosing to look for this piece or that piece, what approach you're going to take to solving the problem of putting all the pieces together. And as they become more complicated, you can look out there, you've got these jigsaw puzzles with 1,000 or 3,000 or 5,000 pieces, and you realize that you have to have a strategy to figure out what it means. You can't just go to that uh, pile of pieces with a certain background of experience, look at the picture on the cover, and within two or three days, put it all together. It's a process. Exegesis is a lot like that. Sometimes you have to uh, approach it in different ways. One way to approach it is to look at this particular passage and realize that in order to understand what it's talking about, to avoid some mistakes that have been made in the past and some misunderstandings, we have to start at the end and work backwards. Okay? That's really important just because of the way Paul lays this thing out uh, grammatically. So it's just a careful process uh, of, of working through this. And the last phrase here is the one we run into in verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Now, when you look at that in the King James Version, it it is a little bit ambiguous of what that means in terms of being enlightened. Is that present tense? Is that past tense? Is that a process? Is it a one-time thing? Being is ambiguous. Being enlightened. So, so what do we do with that? And I want to mention a couple of things here, but One of the things I'll mention is that in the NIV, they totally missed the boat on this. And every now and then I'll do this. This is for a pedagogical reason, not to pick apart NIV, although it's not one of my favorite translations. It's more of a commentary in places, which means it's not a strict translation. You get the 
the translator's theology more than you do an understanding of what the original might say. And the way the NIV translates this is as an independent sentence. Now, that's not unusual in Bible translations. If you look at the King James Version, one of the things they try to do is to make every verse an independent sentence or at least an independent clause just so that English readers would not get uh, too confused by these really long sentences that the Apostle Paul would use. And so the NIV translates this as as a total independent sentence and says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Notice that's taken a more of an interpretive stance than the King, New King James, which just says being enlightened. May be enlightened indicates a possibility in the future. Hmm. That doesn't reflect the Greek at all. The phrase it being enlightened is a translation of the Greek word photidza. We get our English word photo from this verb. Photos is the word for light. So photidzo is the verb to be enlightened. And here, grammatically, it is a perfect passive participle. Now, I don't always go through. I use slides, and I copy in the grammar and everything, but I always don't take the time to emphasize why each element there is of exegetical significance. But in this, we need to at least look at the basic aspects of it. It's a participle, which means it's not a finite verb. It is expressing something, and if there's a finite verb uh, somewhere in the passage that it applies to, which is the case here, then you have to decide... Uh, what its nuance is. It's an adverbial participle of cause. And so that helps explain its relationship. It, he's, he's making this additional statement because the eyes of your understanding, and then it's a perfect tense. Now, perfect tense means it's com- referring to completed action. Future tense talks about something that will happen in the future. Present tense indicates something that is happening now, either in a narrow sense of right now or in a more elongated sense of maybe now during this week or during this month or during this year. But this is a perfect tense, which is more than simply a past tense. It is emphasizing a completed past action and focusing on the current results of that completed past action. So what we have here, this is like when Jesus is on the cross, the last thing he says is uh, to telestai, it has been completely paid for. It's over and done with. It's completed in the past, but the results go on. And so this is what happens in the past in a, there's a completed action that takes place on the part of every believer that they are enlightened. That happens at salvation. Uh, when we look at a passage, I'm not going to take the time to go through it, but if we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in about verses 9 down through 16, one of the most significant passages in the Scripture, the Apostle Paul is talking about what we gain through regeneration, when we trust in Christ. 
before we trust in Christ, we're referred to as a soulish man in verse 14, a natural man. And that a soulish man is made up of body and soul. But he doesn't have something that we call a human spirit. That is, that capacity to have a relationship with God to understand his word. But once you trust in Christ, at the instant you trust in Christ, as you are born again, something new comes into existence, and that's that human spirit. And that gives us the ability to understand, to comprehend the Word of God. That doesn't mean you always get it right, but now it's no long, you're no longer in darkness. But now you are a son of light, a child of light, and you're going to walk in the light, and you're going to have illumination. So this refers to the biblical teaching on illumination. And so we're all given that capacity at the instant of salvation. But that doesn't mean you just pick up the Bible and you read it and you know what it means. There's a lot of people who make that mistake. I hear people who make that mistake about people who have the gift of pastor-teacher. The gift of pastor-teacher is a communication gift. It is not a gift for immediately understanding the Word of God. It takes time to do so. And over the course of time, any pastor, any teacher, any professor is going to grow and increase in his knowledge and understanding of the Word because we may get drilled down in one passage and understand to some degree what that means in context, but then when we get to a fuller, greater, more expansive understanding of passages that correlate, we may say, mm, I picked the wrong option there. I have to go with option B instead of option A. But here, and we'll get to that, all of this is leading to a couple of important things, but I'm slowly, gradually building your uh, suspense here. The eyes of your understanding, are, uh, we should, the way we should translate this, is not unlike the NET which translates it with sense instead of cause. I prefer cause, but in the NET they translated it, since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious uh, inheritance. In other words, we're given a potential at salvation so that we can know and understand God's word. We, can, we have that enlightenment now. We are born again. We, ha- we are a new creature in Christ. Part of that means that uh, we can come to understand God's word. And the purpose of that is those three uh, what clauses that I, that they're what in the New King James, they're, they are uh, what also in the NET. Now, the way I translate this is more with a causal sense because... Now, notice that this develops from what's said in verse verse 16, or verse 17. So that's why we're starting at the end. We have to understand the role this plays in this thought structure before we can really understand what verse 16 is talking about. Whatever it's talking about, it is saying that we can know God at the end of the verse because... The eyes of our heart have already been enlightened. Now, eyes is a metaphor. This is talking about just as physical eyes let light come into our 
uh, in, into the nerves of our eyeballs, and that is transmitted into our brain. Then as a result of that, we come to see things, and that means that we understand things. When we say, ah, oh, I see now, that's just a figure of speech for I understand. We have been enlightened. Our eyes have been opened. So that's what this this figure of speech means. The eyes of our heart, the heart in Scripture mostly refers to the brain, our intellectual activity. And it's not talking about emotion. Heart usually refers to the very center of our being, and it emphasizes the thinking part at the center of our being because the eyes of our heart have already been enlightened. So that takes us back to this this new capacity that we have once we trust in Christ as Savior. So we put that together with verse 17, and it reads that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him because the eyes of your heart has al- have already been enlightened. I want you to notice the time frame here. In the past, your eyes have been enlightened, but now Paul is praying that there is additional insight to be given. He's praying for additional insight to be given to us. That's what's referred to by the spirit of wisdom and revelation, but it is in or related to the knowledge of God. That's the goal, is to know God and know him more intimately. So the next phrase that we have to understand is this phrase, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, what's interesting about this phrase grammatically is it's not just the spirit of wisdom, stop, and revelation, as if you're talking about the spirit of wisdom and then secondarily revelation, Spirit here refers to both wisdom and revelation. Both of those nouns are uh, related, are in the genitive, and they're related to the word spirit. But how do we understand that? You can tell from looking uh, up here at the text that uh, spirit is in the uh, is in the lower case, and because it's in the lower case, they are not translating it or interpreting it to be the Holy Spirit with a capital S. See, anytime you see spirit with a lowercase s or an uppercase s, the translator has made an interpretive decision. And he's made a decision whether this is talking about the Holy Spirit or maybe uh, maybe something else. So we have to decide that as to exactly what, what this is talking about. There are some that take this to refer to the human spirit. And so we have the word pneuma, which is the Greek word that is translated spirit. And this is one of those words that has pages of nuances, of meanings. And I just put some of them up here on the slide for you. It literally refers to air or it refers to breath or wind. If you have pneumonia, the new there relates to uh, problems with your breathing, problems with your lungs. If you talk about something like a pneumatic drill, it is powered by air. So that's the literal meaning of pneuma. It can mean air, wind, or breath. But because you can't see your breath, because you can't uh, 
uh, touch it or capitalize it. You can feel it a little bit, but you can't really capture it uh, too well. It is often used to refer to that which is immaterial. And so it is a term that is used to refer to the life spirit, that which um, brings life to someone, and when they die, they no longer have that spirit, they no longer breathe, so it comes to refer to the life spirit. It can refer to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. It can refer to the human spirit, which is that which... Uh, we acquire that capacity we acquire at the moment of regeneration. First Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there he mentions all three. There's a big debate, as I've taught you before, in theology is whether we're composed of two parts or three parts. Two parts is dichotomy, three parts is trichotomy. Uh, dichotomy means that you're just composed of an immaterial part and a material part and all these different words uh, that are used in the Scripture are basically synonymous, whether it's spirit or heart or kidneys or these other things that, that relate to the inner part of man, the immaterial part, that they're all basically the same thing. And in some cases, they are interchangeable and they're synonymous, but in two passages here and in Ephesians 4.12, they're not, because the Bible makes it very clear that the, it's talking about three parts. So we believe, I believe, in a trichotomous view that man has only two parts before he's saved because in spiritual death he lost that human spirit but when you're saved you regain that that human that human spirit and so this is one way in which this is understood that this has something to do with the human spirit others will translate it to mean an attitude or a disposition an attitude or disposition. Somebody talk about the spirit of bitterness. So they're talking about an attitude or disposition of, of bitterness or a spirit of anger. You'll hear people talk that way. And so they look at this and they go, this is spirit of wisdom. Okay, so that's an attitude or a disposition toward wisdom. Ah, that may work for wisdom, but does it work for revelation? However you understand spirit, it has to work for both spirit and revelation. As if, if you think this is a disposition of, of wisdom that can work, but when do we have a disposition of revelation? We don't. Okay, so that becomes a problem. Now, there are ways that scholars try to work around that, and I ran into one. What's interesting, and this goes back to the story about how we grow in our knowledge of the Word, is that for about 30, 35 years, the head of the Greek department at Dallas Seminary was a scholar by the name of Harold Honer. And uh, I had Honer for a couple of courses when I went through seminary, and he was, uh, he, he, he was a, a Pennsylvania Dutch farmer by background. That was a family he was uh, born into. But he became quite a scholar, had his doctorate from Dallas Seminary, had a second doctorate from Cambridge, wrote a book that's still in print that was his doctoral dissertation on Herod Antipas. He was a well-known scholar. And for over 30 years, he taught Ephesians at Dallas Seminary. In the early 80s, Dallas Theological Seminary printed an excellent 
overall, I would give it an excellent rating, excellent two-volume commentary set that's really good for handling problems and is a good go-to resource called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Volume 1 is the Old Testament. Volume 2 is the New Testament. And Dr. Honer wrote the commentary on Ephesians in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And I want to quote what he said about this passage in 1982. He said, The content of Paul's request is that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Notice the uppercase, the spirit there. But he's not. He's going to change that. He said, though the NIV translators, because when Dallas, when when they published this, they did it as a commentary on the, on the uh, NIV, and they corrected a lot. I mean, the commentators do, but that's the English version that they relate to. So he says, though the NIV translators interpret spirit as referring to the Holy Spirit, he said it is better to see it as a disposition or attitude because of the two genitives following it, of wisdom and of revelation. And then he compares it to the use of a gentle spirit in 1 Corinthians 4.21. He said, on the other hand, one cannot obtain a spirit or attitude of wisdom and revelation apart from the Holy Spirit. See, he recognizes there that ultimately whatever is said here, everybody's got to ultimately relate this back to the Holy Spirit. He says, as Isaiah wrote, and then he quotes from Isaiah 11.2. Notice Isaiah 11.2 says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, talking about the Messiah, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. Did it say revelation? No, it did not. Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Okay, that was in 1982. 30 years later, 20 years later, in 2002, Dr. Honer published what many consider the most, uh, one of the most comprehensive, exhaustive commentaries on Ephesians after teaching this course for 30 years. And when I say things like that, I'm always reminded that there are some people who say, oh, I'm going to run out and buy that. Dr. Dean said that is a good book. You have to figure out what good means and what best means. I learned this my first year in seminary. I went to one professor who was very much more Calvinistic then than I think he is now, but he was what he would describe at the time as a four-and-a-half-point Calvinist. And I said, I had him for theology proper, and I said, what do you think is the best commentary on Romans? And he said, well, it's a commentary by John Murray in the uh, New International Commentary Series. And John Murray was the head of the theology department at Westminster Theological Seminary, which is an Amil Covenant Theology Seminary, five-point Calvinist. Uh, and so I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. I know that's going to be very Calvinistic. So my next class period was with uh, Zane Hodges in first-year Greek. Zane was not a Calvinist. Zane wasn't an Arminian, but Zane wasn't a Calvinist, and he understood free grace, and he wasn't lordship or any of those other things. And I said, Prof, what do you recommend as the best commentary on Romans? He said, John Murray's commentary in the New International Commentary series. That was confusing because the theology that often was touted by Murray wasn't the same, wasn't what, what Hodges liked. But when you look at a commentary, you want somebody to list most of the positions and be very thorough in his analysis and exposition. 
and that doesn't mean you're going to agree with it, or when I recommend a commentary, that doesn't mean that I agree with every conclusion they say or that I even go with it. But a lot of times I'll recommend a book because it made me think a lot of good thoughts. I didn't necessarily agree with the person I read. And I just say that because I need a little corrective there that too many people run out and they read something that I mentioned. But overall, this is a very good commentary for seminary students and others who are at at a certain level. It is a must-read. I would not agree with him on a lot of the ways he handled the first part of chapter 1. But he changed his view. That's my point. Here's this guy who's been studying now for 30 years, and, has, and he's in print. Now, this is rare for somebody, a scholar of this caliber, to change his view in print. They don't do it. They've, they've committed themselves to that position. They've argued for it, probably taught it for a number of years, and then realized there's some problems with that view that I didn't quite understand at the beginning, and the other view is better. That happens to every pastor I know. I don't know how many things I taught in the first 10 years I was a pastor that I would teach the opposite of today, simply because I grew in my understanding of Scripture, doctrine, theology along the way. Nothing critical, nothing earth-shattering, but just a passage here, passage there, and, and you refine your view as you go along. You find your understanding of Scripture. That's just part of growth. And that's how the Holy Spirit works. He doesn't just zap you as a pastor teacher and say, oh, you just pick up your Bible this morning, read those verses, you'll be able to go and teach that with no problem. You have to spend hours doing this. I have worked on this particular passage, I'm still working on it, for at least six weeks. And reading different views, listing the different arguments, the pros and the cons and all of those different things. But in 2002, in his commentary, Dr. Honer wrote, thus this view, that is the view that he had held before, this view contends that in the present context, it refers to the attitude or spiritual disposition toward the insight and openness to revelation. Those who think that it refers to the Holy Spirit do so because the qualities of wisdom and revelation cannot be generated by humans. This second view is preferred for seven reasons. Now, that second view was not the view he took 20 years ago in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. He came to understand through more advanced study. And, you know, in 1982, this is a guy with two PhDs and the head of the Greek department at Dallas Seminary. I say that because a lot of people say, oh, he knows Greek and Hebrew. He'll know the answer. Wrong. All it does when you learn Greek and Hebrew is create another batch of problems on top of the ones in terms of other translations. So when we translate this, we have to understand that the key word, that's why I'm working backwards, is we look at this, may God give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We have to understand what revelation is. Revelations from the Greek word apocalypsis, which is where we get our English word apocalypse, and it means revelation or disclosure, the unveiling of new information. So who, what is the new information? Well, this is related in Ephesians to the mystery that is previously unrevealed information. So God is giving the information. God is the one who is disclosing the information. So the S cannot be a reference 
to the human spirit or to an attitude that is disposed to understanding revelation. That's getting very, 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 very awkward. So what we see here is that because revelation is the work of God and the Holy Spirit is the agent of revelation, then the S has to be uppercase S, and so it is the Spirit who gives wisdom and discloses divine truth. We could translate it that way. Now, you might ask the question, well, uh, why is Paul praying for God to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation when they're already saved and the Holy Spirit's already indwelling them? And so we have to understand that what is what is being said here is, is, is these genitive clauses. What, what does wisdom and revelation have to do with the Spirit? They are describing the characteristics of the Holy Spirit. This is the area of his work. God the Son had the area of work in terms of redemption and paying the penalty for sin. The area of the Spirit's ministry towards us is he is... Uh, he is the one who is working in us through the word to produce uh, wisdom and to help us understand what he has revealed. He's the spirit who has revealed this, First Peter uh, 1, 20 and 21. So this is the focal point here is that Paul is not praying that they be given the Holy Spirit, but that the Holy Spirit that they've been given because they have been enlightened already uh, is going to help them understand the word. So he's saying that uh, he may give, that God may give to you the spirit, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him because the eyes of your heart have already been enlightened. So this isn't a new, fresh gift of the Holy Spirit. It is describing the role of the Holy Spirit in helping us to understand his word and grow more closely to God through the knowledge of him. The concept of wisdom in Scripture is not the Greek concept of wisdom, which is related to intellectual activity such as uh, philosophy, but it is the Old Testament Hebrew idea of chokmah, which is skill, and in this case, spiritual skill, skill for living. And then we see that it is in the knowledge of him. It is uh, directed toward knowing God. This is the Greek word epinosis. We discussed this just the other night, Thursday night, in our First Peter uh, class. Uh, and so these kind of dovetail together here. That gnosis and epinosis are words that uh, have been debated quite a bit as to how they relate to each other. Gnosis is knowledge. And then when you put this prepositional prefix in front of gnosis, it becomes epinosis. Well, how does that relate? And epinosis is really a subcategory of gnosis. So sometimes gnosis and epinosis are going to be interchangeable. Other times uh, epinosis emphasize something uh, a, a, a little more significant. And in this case, what it's talking about is that personal knowledge of God that is the result of our continued walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. So what we have seen here is that the prayer is that God might give to us 
the spirit who the, who produces wisdom and revelation and disclosure of who God is in the knowledge of him. So this is all all talking about increasing our rapport and knowledge, our intimacy, in what we refer to as fellowship. It's just a more uh, specific way of talking about what goes on in what we summarize by the word uh, by the word fellowship. We become have a more intimate knowledge. Now, at the very beginning, it's talking about the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that is referring to God the Father. This is not a, a passage here that's talking about um, the, our, our, the, the, our God and Lord Jesus Christ, like we talked about in, in, in our passage in Second Peter. But this is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. And that phrase, Father of glory, is an important phrase. Glory in the Scripture emphasizes something that is weighty, something that is significant. I mean, the literal meaning of the word kavod in the Old Testament is heavy. Something and it comes physically heavy, so it came to be applied to things that were of significance in life. They were weighty matters. They were things that had great significance and great importance. And when that word is applied to God, God is the most important, the most significant of anything in 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 the world. He is the creator of all things. And so the word glory then began to be take on the idea of his essence. And so he is the glorious father. This is emphasizing his importance, his significance. And then it is that he is the one who's going to give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in this more intimate knowledge of him because the eyes of our heart have already been opened. As I close, reminded of this passage in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. And in this passage, this centerpiece, is what God is speaking of here as a priority, that we understand and know him. Now, if you take a look at Jeremiah one of the criticisms that God has of, of Israel or Judah at this time is that they don't know him. They have not taken the time to know him. And knowing him is not just knowing facts about him, although they've rejected that. They've uh, been into extreme idolatry for, for generations. They have failed to know him. So the priority that God emphasizes here is laid out. Verse 23, let not the wise men glory, or that is, put importance on human wisdom. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising chesed, loving kindness, loyal, faithful love, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, as the Apostle Paul prayed that we might uh, know you, that this is produced by the work of God the Holy Spirit in our lives, who is ministering to us in such a way that he is taking the potential that we gained at salvation to understand spiritual truth 
And he is using that to expand our understanding of who you are through our study of the Scripture, that we may come to not only know facts and information about you, but that that will develop into an intimate relationship with you, that we may know you, not just know about you, and that as a result of that, we will have spiritual growth that uh, increases our, our maturity and our understanding of our mission, our appointment in the body of Christ, that we may make that the priority of our life and not the things that we think are otherwise important. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here today, anyone listening uh, via the Internet or later on to this message, that if they've never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would come to understand that the good news of Christianity is that we can have life, real life. Jesus came to give life and to give it abundantly. And it is based not upon something we do, but upon what he did on the cross where he died as our substitute. He paid the penalty for our sin that by believing in him, we might have everlasting life. It's not on the basis of our morality. It's not on the basis of uh, church membership. It's not on the basis of any any human thing that we can do. It's not on the basis of ritual. It's simply on the basis of understanding who Jesus is as the eternal Son of God who came into this life as the promised Messiah and that he died on the cross. He was that sacrificial lamb who died in our place that we might have everlasting life by believing on him. Father, we pray that you would make that clear to everyone here and that as a result of believing, we have new life. The eyes of our heart have been enlightened at that instant so that we can now have an understanding of your word. We have the potential of understanding your word and the potential of an intimate relationship with you and that that should be the highest driving priority in our lives. And Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.